All right, well, last week was the atonement introduced. We're back for uh, another lesson this time on the atonement explored. want to take you further into this concept of the atonement in Scripture. Again, the atonement refers to the means by which God and man are made right. Our sin against God makes us in the wrong in many ways. And the atonement rights these wrongs, forming the basis of our salvation, enabling us to be restored to God. As we talked about last week, all religions rather have some means of atonement, of, of righting the wrongs between creation and creator. But the Bible is unique in that it presents God as making atonement on our behalf for us. And he does so through offering up his perfect son Christ on the cross. That's the means that God gave uh, for us, that to make atonement for us, that we could be reconciled, reunited, redeemed, saved, the whole nine yards. And this is why the death of Jesus on the cross is the very heart of the gospel. There is no gospel without his death on the cross. Into, getting into this last time, we found uh, that Christ's death fulfills the Old Testament sacrificial system. He was that once for all sacrifice. But don't ever let the Old Testament sacrificial system escape you. You've got to keep that at all, at all times in the back of your mind because we can't really understand the New Testament sacrifice or atonement of Christ apart from the Old Testament, which was really the shadow of things to come. It provides a foundation for understanding Christ's atonement. We then spent some time last week exploring different theories of the atonement for the sake of exposure. And these theories all attempt to discover the real heart of the atonement Basically, all Christians believe Jesus died on the cross. Yeah, that, that's true. But, but why? What did he really accomplish on the cross? What was the point or the purpose of his death on the cross? Was it to ransom us from Satan's power? Was it to provide a moral example for us to follow? Was it to show God's power over sin? These answers all capture some element of truth, but they're altogether insufficient in their grasp of the atonement, as we found. They're all missing the main point. And what is the main point? It is the substitutionary death of Jesus through which he paid for our sins. And this view is called the penal substitutionary view of the atonement. And today, like I told you last week, we're coming back to just focus more on this biblical understanding of the atonement exploring this penal substitutionary view of the atonement to better understand Christ's atonement and all its nuances. Again, I'll reiterate, why are we doing this? Why are we even studying this? I thought this was a doctrines of grace study. It is, and the main issue we're fast approaching is the extent of the atonement, which seeks to answer the question, for whom did Jesus die? Did he die for all or for the elect only? That's the the age-old debate between unlimited atonement versus limited atonement. You've heard that before. The key word there being, you know, atonement in this discussion. Most people want to jump right in, start with that discussion. You know, limited, unlimited, let's debate. However, there's a problem with starting there. The problem is that word atonement does not appear once in the New Testament. The actual word atonement doesn't appear in the New Testament. You may not have known that. No Greek word is translated into atonement in the New Testament. Of the NASB, King James, just one word, really meaning uh, ransom. So, you know, you want to talk about, for example, limited atonement or unlimited. We can't talk about it because what do we even mean by atonement? The, the New Testament, there's, the word isn't even there. 
It, it comes through different words, different concepts. So until we define and understand what we even mean by atonement, we can't really talk about limited versus unlimited and that whole discussion. You get what I'm saying? So the word atonement and the concept is all over the Old Testament, but the word itself is absent from the New Testament. Rather, in the New Testament, when applied to Christ, the atonement becomes this multifaceted theological concept. Just think of the Trinity, the word Trinity, not in the Bible, not in the New Testament, but the concept clearly taught and expressed in the New Testament. And so we need to understand this concept of the atonement when it applies to Jesus in the New Testament. We need to know then how exactly the New Testament understands the atoning death of Jesus. If we're going to have any hope of trying to figure out for whom did Jesus make this atonement for, that's redundant, but anyway, for whom did Jesus die? We need to figure out what, what, what does that really mean? To say Jesus died for you, what are we really saying there? We need to figure that out. And that's what this study is all about. Last week, introduction. This week, really getting into exploring the atonement. We started to learn last time the atoning death of Christ is manifold. It's, it's like a diamond, a magnificent diamond that shines. It's one unit, yet the reason it shines is because it has all these different facets that just, they're, they're teaching the same truth, but from a different angle, the different emphasis or nuance. And so today we want to explore these facets and get a more precise picture of what his death truly accomplished. And so we're going to start by revisiting the big picture of this penal substitution, the big picture, and then we're going to look at all the, the main expressions of this atonement. Hopefully that makes sense, and as always, you guys can all stop and ask questions or make comments as you uh, see fit. So, penal substitutionary atonement revisited. Punishment for sin in our place is the essential concept behind the atonement, Christ's atoning death. Again, that's what penal substitution means. Penal, meaning his death was penal. He was paying the penalty for sins. He was bearing punishment. And it was substitutionary. It wasn't for his own sins. It was for ours. He was bearing our punishment. It was a substitute punishment for, for us, for sinners. Last week, we introduced this view at the very end. Does the Bible actually teach it, though? And here the answer is yes, overwhelmingly. First, I'll point this out. It's been well documented that the New Testament in particular uses these four Greek prepositions. Or, uh, these are um, words that relate other words. And uh, they clearly teach the substitutionary nature of Christ's death. So just follow along with me. These four key words that uh, teach clearly the substitutionary nature of Christ's death. It'll make sense when again to examples. The first, you know, the phrase Jesus died for sins, the Greek word peri. It means he died for or concerning our sin, our sin debt. We have a lot of verses to cover, so I'll be reading or referencing most of them for you. Uh, for the most part, 1 Peter 3.8, Jesus died for sins, once for all, concerning sins. 1 John 2.2, 2, he's the propitiation for our sins, and those of the whole world. You have Dia, Jesus died for your sake. He died for your sake. It means because of, for the sake of. For example, 1 Corinthians 8, 11 says, it says, for through uh, your knowledge, he who is weak is ruined. The brother, for whose sake, Christ died. 
talking about Christian liberties and not stumbling your brother, for whose sake Christ died. Christ died for his sake, not for his own sake, for that brother's sake, for our sake. In 2 Corinthians 8, 9, it says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. Speaking of his incarnation and his humbling death on the cross, why did he do all this? Why did he come to earth, live, die? Was for our sake. This, this atoning death was for our sake. Another, another one, uh, the Greek uh, proposition, anti, uh, Jesus died in your place. Literally means in the place of or as a substitute for. An example, not relating to Jesus, but Matthew 2.22 says, but when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in the place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. Uh, Speaking of Joseph, it just mentions how, you know, one ruler was reigning in the place of his father. This, This word just speaks of someone taking the place of another. And Jesus came and died in our place. That's the point we're making. For example, Matthew 20, 28 Jesus says of himself, the son of man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. Literally, in the place of many. He gave his life unto death on the cross as a ransom in the place of many. The whole point we're making with these words is they they clearly all teach the substitutionary nature of his death. It wasn't for himself. The atonement was for, for us. And lastly, Jesus died on your behalf with uh, Huper. In fact, you can turn to John 11 if you want in this one. John 11, you can turn there while um, I'll read some of the other references to you. This is the most common one. We're speaking of Christ's death, and it just means he, his life was given on our behalf. His death was on our behalf. For example, Luke twenty-two nineteen speaks of uh, the, the Last Supper. He gives the bread, my body given for you. And Mark fourteen twenty-four, the blood in the new covenant poured out for you, for many, his body, his blood, broken, shed, for, for who? For us, on, on our behalf. You've got Romans 5, 6, and 8, speak, saying that Christ died for the ungodly, that God demonstrates his own love toward us, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Pretty clear verses, 1 Thessalonians five ten. Christ died for us. Another example in John 11, if you're there, these are Pharisees in the Sanhedrin conspiring to kill Jesus. And one of them unwittingly prophesies of Christ's substitutionary death, if you remember this passage. In verse 49, one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all, nor do you take into account that it is expedient for you that one man die for the people. And that the whole nation not perish. And John says in verse 51, Now he did not say this on his own initiative, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus was going to die for the nation. And not for the nation only, but in order that he might also gather together into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. And again, the the point we're making here, the usage of all these prepositions in the Greek of the New Testament it's that when Christ's death is spoken of, it's, it's all substitutionary. It's for us, for our sake, in our place, on our behalf. Different ways of, of saying the same thing. It was substitutionary, and it was 
for our sins. It was penal, penal substitutionary. This is far and away that the biblical understanding of the atonement, that his death on the cross, how do we interpret the death on the cross? The New Testament does it for us. This was a penal substitutionary sacrifice. You have several metaphors also used that teach the same thing. I'll just rattle through these quickly. They're in your notes. In Ephesians 5.25, pictures Christ as this husband who gave himself for us. He loved the church and gave himself up for her. Substitute. He, he was a substitute sacrifice for the bride, for the church. You have the shepherd, John 10, verses 11, 15. Christ, the good shepherd. And what, what did he do? He gave himself for us, for the flock. The, the good shepherd laid down his life for the sheep, in place of the sheep. John 1, some of you that got a typo in your notes, if it says 128, it should say 129 there. Uh, John 129, Christ, he's the Lamb of God who is slain to take away the sins of the world. John 6:51, he's the bread of life given for us to give us life in our place. And then lastly, Isaiah 53 Go ahead and turn there, if you're, if you're quick at least, turn to Isaiah 53. This is certainly in the Old Testament, and maybe in all scripture, the clearest passage speaking, just that the one-stop passage speaking of, of the purely substitutionary nature of Christ's atonement. Isaiah 53, the suffering servant passage, clearly a messianic prophecy affirmed in the New Testament and Christ being that, that servant who came first to, to die for the people as the, the suffering servant. And some, some special verses in 4 through 6. I've done this before. If you've been around, you've, you've heard me do this before. But I'll tell you to underline in, in verses 4 through 6. All these prepositions that show that he wasn't doing this for himself. In the sense, he wasn't dying for his own salvation. It was for, for us. This, this substitutionary death, this atoning death was for us. And so look at verse 4, if you're there, in Isaiah 53. It says, Surely our griefs he himself bore, and our sorrows he carried. Yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him. And by his scourging, we are healed. All of us, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. And again, down look at verse 11, for example. It says at the end, my servant will justify the many as he will bear their iniquities. At the end of verse 12, uh, he himself bore the sin of many. And it really, the whole chapter speaks of this. But how clear is that? That what this Messiah, the suffering servant, was going to do is not die for himself, for his own iniquities, for his own sake, other than his glory, but rather that the atoning side of his death was for us. We're, we're sheep that have gone astray. There were the sinners who deserved judgment, but he was going to die in our place, bearing our sin taking it away, that we can be saved. And the many uh, words that go along with that. And so, in all, the penal substitutionary nature of Christ's death is extremely well attested in the New Testament. We didn't cover that part last week, but here you have it. 
Now, I know most of you, you may not be aware of this, but in the past couple hundred years, it's been a very popular thing by liberal theologians to attack the penal substitutionary nature of his atonement. That it's, it's a you know, cosmic child abuse. It's, it's gruesome. It's, you know, God would never do this. God doesn't have wrath that needs to be appeased. And the whole nine yards. But scripture itself is crystal clear that Jesus did die in the stead of sinners. In free and willing obedience to the Father, he died on the cross as their substitute, taking on the penalty of their sins, bearing their shame and guilt. His death turned aside the Father's wrath, which was righteous and rightly due to sin and sinners, and he redeemed them from their bondage, thereby reconciling them to God. And just in what I said right there, we actually see some of the different facets of this atoning death start to shine. So let's take a closer look now at some of these, these key expressions of the atonement. Again, seeing that the word atonement is not in the, in the New Testament, it's not translated into the New Testament at the very least, the concept is there, but it comes through other words, other terms. John Calvin himself highlighted three key terms that framed this New Testament concept of the atonement. I mean, the the concept is clear in the Old Testament. It's carried forth. It is in the New Testament. It just comes forth now with different adjectives, different words that carry the same meaning, but different nuances, different facets, right? So Calvin had three. There was propitiation, which was directed God's word. That's Christ's death directed God word. There's redemption, which is Christ's death directed human word. And then there's reconciliation, his death directed both word, to make up a word. And to this, we can add the bookends of sacrifice and triumph. And together, these five terms put together, they really capture the essence of what Christ's atonement meant and accomplished. If you didn't catch all those, we'll go through them again. You've got five points. That's what they're going to be in your outline. And these all address different aspects of how Christ's one death undid or rectified the negative effects of sin in the fall. So let's take a closer look at these. The first is sacrifice. Number one is sacrifice. The main consequence of our sin is what? Guilt. Guilt before God. We've done wrong. We are guilty. This comes with judgment and wrath. We'll talk about that later, but just sin begets guilt. But Christ's death eliminates that guilt, and it does so by means of sacrifice. By means of sacrifice. So first and foremost, you have to understand that Christ's death and atonement was a sacrifice. Fundamental to its nature, it was a sacrifice for sins. In this regard, you have to understand the New Testament writers viewed Christ's sacrificial death through the lens of the Old Testament sacrificial system. Like we covered last week, it's the basis, the foundation for the New Testament writers understanding the death of Jesus. His death was in the line of that sacrificial system, in fact, fulfilling it. And so although we studied a bit of this last week, I'll give you a very quick review again of that Old Testament sacrificial system You've got the Levitical sacrifices, the guilt offering, the sin offering, the peace offering, the burn offering. 
where basically you have this authorized priesthood being the representatives of the people before God, and they offer up unblemished animals unto death on the altar, their blood being given as a life for a life to expiate people's sins, to kind of cleanse their sins or cover their sins. The, the, the essence of the sacrificial system. Two, I guess you could call them events, stand out in this system. One being the Day of Atonement, which should be familiar to you. We talked about it even past Sunday. For example, Leviticus 16. You've got the high priest where once a year he atones for the sins of the whole nation. He atones for himself first, then for the nation. He takes the sacrificial blood of the sacrifices and applies it to the mercy seat. That's on top of the Ark of the Covenant in the Holy of Holies to expiate the sins of the whole nation. Also involved is the scapegoat. Remember, he takes two goats. One is slain. The other, the priest lays his hands on, confesses the sins of the whole nation over the, the scapegoat. And that goat is not killed. It's released into the wilderness. And this pictures the people's sins being taken away, taken far away. Uh, their sins being transferred or imputed to the scapegoat, and it's taken away. So, I mean, of course, there's more, but the Day of Atonement, a big part of the sacrificial system. And then, of course, Passover, plus the memorial of the Passover, another huge element to their system. Exodus 12, the last plague, the death of the firstborn in all the land, Egyptian and Jew, were under this plague. However, God gave them a provision of Ransom or redemption, where if they sacrificed a lamb, they could redeem the life of their firstborn. They could save the life of their own firstborn. Sacrificing an unblemished lamb and taking the blood, putting it on the doorpost. By doing so, God's wrath or judgment would be turned away, would pass over that house. And then, of course, thereafter, a memorial feast to commemorate and remember this event. Very key in picturing God's wrath being turned away from the people. And so that's, that's the quickest snapshot of the Old Testament sacrificial system. But as we learned, even this past Sunday morning, Jesus came in fulfillment of the whole thing, of the whole system in its many dimensions. His death was a sacrifice in line with the Old Testament sacrifices. The key difference, though, is his sacrifice was perfect in every way. The old sacrifices were continual, his Once for all, the old merely covered sin, his paid for sin. The old came through a priest who had to make atonement for himself. Christ himself is the the great priest who lives forever, himself being sinless. And so Jesus is the complete sacrifice for sins. We read in Isaiah 53.10, he's our guilt offering. We actually didn't read that verse, but it mentions he is our guilt offering. You have Ephesians 5.2, which says Jesus gave himself for us. What does that mean? He gave himself for us. The verse continues. It says, as an offering and a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. Remember, the whole discussion of the atonement, we're asking, how do we really understand the death on the cross? What was he really doing? Well, it tells you. He was offering himself as a sacrifice to God. As a fragrant aroma, picturing right in line with the Old Testament sacrifices to expiate, to cover, to propitiate sins. Hebrews 7.27, 
It says Christ does not need daily, like those priests, to offer up sacrifices first for his own sins, then for the sins of the people, because this he did once for all when he offered himself up. So Christ's death was a complete sacrifice for sins, and and we got a big dose of that this past Sunday morning. Same thing for Jesus is really the complete day of atonement. Not even going to rehash this much. Just read on your own Hebrews 9 and 10. We essentially covered that in the Sunday morning sermon. So I'm looking around. Most of you were here. You got that big dose of it. He fulfills and completes the day of atonement, bringing about a new day of atonement, a true once for all atonement for sins. And then, of course, Jesus, the complete Passover lamb. 1 Corinthians 5, 7 refers to Christ. It says, for Christ, our Passover has also been sacrificed. He's the new Passover lamb, the, the ultimate, the perfect Passover lamb. In this case, not to redeem the firstborn, rather God gave his own firstborn to redeem all of us, to redeem his people. But if his blood is applied to, so to speak, the doorpost of your heart, God will pass over his wrath on, on you. It, so to speak. First John, or rather John 129, again, Christ, he's pictured as that lamb of God. The lamb imagery plays heavy, who takes away the sins of the world. First Peter 1, 18, 19, we'll see that verse later, but again, picks up on that lamb imagery and that we've been redeemed by the blood of the lamb. We are redeemed by the blood of the lamb. And then, of, of course, Matthew 26, the, the Lord's Supper that was a Passover feast. And in inaugurating the new covenant and the, the Passover, or rather the communion memorial service, Christ was really teaching how he and his death was fulfilling the Passover and the Passover feast and replacing it with something new because the perfect had come. And so in, in all these different ways, the New Testament continually speaks of Jesus as our sacrifice. His death was not just a death. A lot of people died on crosses, but they weren't being sacrificed, at least not to God. But Christ, his death, one of the key facets, this was a sacrifice where God himself was offering up Jesus on the altar of the cross to be killed and slain, that his blood would be that payment for our sins in a perfect way, much like the old prefigured, but couldn't actually accomplish this is uh, really one of the chief windows through which we view the atonement. Sacrifice. Number two, propitiation. Propitiation. So one of the consequences of our sin is guilt. After guilt comes wrath. God's wrath. Because we're guilty, we incur God's wrath. The wrath of God is, is the reaction of God's divine holiness against sin. God has no choice but to recoil against sin because it's so antithetical to his nature. Our sin arouses God's holy indignation whereby he must render judgment. And God's judgment on sin, that is his wrath. When he pours out his judgment on sin, that is his wrath. And we merit this wrath through our sin and the consequences thereof. But this is where propitiation comes in, this concept, propitiation. And the word is used, Old and New Testament. Propitiation refers to the satisfaction or the turning aside of God's wrath. And so we can say that 
Christ's death, not just a sacrifice, but a propitiary sacrifice. Meaning, by his sacrificial death, he was bearing the wrath of God on our behalf, such that there's nothing left. You can picture Jesus drinking the cup of God's wrath, that imagery is used in the New Testament, and he drank it down to the dregs, there's nothing left. He swallowed the entire amount of God's wrath toward our sins, so there's nothing left. He was our propitiation, and that thereby we are saved from the righteous wrath of God. Now there's several, first I'll mention several important examples where the Old Testament word translated atonement is kafar in the Hebrew. It carries the sense of propitiation, the turning aside of God's wrath. And it's important to note that this word is translated into propitiation several times in the New Testament. Remember how I mentioned the word atonement? It's not translated in the, in the New Testament, right? Well, we, the word atonement is in the Old Testament a lot. But sometimes the New Testament writers took that word and that concept and really carried it over to the New Testament, the Greek word and word group for propitiation. They're just emphasizing one aspect of the atonement. That's what propitiation is. I hope that makes sense to you. But here are some Old Testament examples of propitiation or the turning away of God's wrath. I'll be brief with these for the sake of time, but you got Exodus 32, the golden calf incident. Because of their idolatry, their sin, God's wrath is aroused. His anger burns towards the people. So Moses goes up the mountain in hopes of what? Interceding for the people. And verse 30 says to make atonement for them, really to turn away God's wrath toward the people. And that's what he did. Number 1646, you've got Korah's rebellion. You've got some people that are grumbling against the leadership of Moses. And that, that sin of grumbling evokes God's wrath. So he sends a plague. But Moses... And I think it's Aaron. They make a sacrifice. And the purpose of that sacrifice is to turn away God's wrath. To turn aside God's wrath. And they do. The plague stops. And then Numbers 25, 11 through 13. That's the example of Phineas. Where because of immorality. People were committing immorality with, uh, I think, the Midianites. God's wrath again burned against the people. So he sent another plague. And Phineas, though... He saw immorality ongoing, and in his zeal for God, he killed some of those in the act of immorality. And it says that that action turned away God's wrath. Numbers 16.46, or I'm sorry, this was uh, 25.11. It says, Phineas, God said, has turned away my wrath from the sons of Israel, and that he was jealous with my jealousy among them so that I did not destroy the sons of Israel in my jealousy. So these are some Old Testament underpinnings of propitiation where atonement overlaps with turning away God's wrath towards sin. Make sense? Now let's look at New Testament expressions of that. Jesus as our propitiation. Why don't you turn to Romans 3? We'll have a couple of verses in Romans, so you might as well uh, turn there. Romans 3, 24 and 25. These are some verses Oliver uh, took you through a couple weeks ago in the Sunday sermon. But the heart of the gospel is Christ's death for us, our justification by grace through faith in Christ. 
And what's so special about Christ that, that justifies us, that we can be justified in Christ? Well, verse 24 says, We're justified as a gift by God's grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in his blood through faith. Notice Christ is a propitiation here. It comes through his blood, the shedding of his blood. We access it through faith. This is God's doing. God put Christ on the cross. And by that blood shed, God's wrath toward our sin is turned away. 1 John 2.2, 2, 2, rather. I've read that before. First uh, John 4.10, very similar. It says, and this is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us. And sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. That God loved us and sent Jesus to be the propitiation for our sins. That word's in the New Testament. So it's one of those words. It's like add, to vo- add to your vocabulary. Because it's, it's going to be there in your Bible. So just get to know what propitiation means. The turning away of God's wrath through his death. Hebrews 2.17. It says, Therefore Jesus had to be made like his brethren in all things so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. That's what the priest does. He makes propitiation. And Christ was both the propitiator and the propitiation. He's both the priest and the sacrifice together, turning away God's wrath by swallowing God's wrath, by taking on God's wrath. That's what made the cross so terrifying in Gethsemane. It's not the physical death and the pain and the whipping. It was the, 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 the cup of God's wrath that he was going to have to drink for us. God can't ignore sin. All wrongs must be made right. And the way God makes evil right in the universe is by judging it, by pouring out his wrath on it, showing his righteousness. If we're to be saved, God can't ignore our sin. Something has to be done. It has to be, to be paid for. His wrath must be uh, spent or fulfilled. And Jesus did that for us, bearing the wrath of God for our sins. And so he is our propitiation, our propitiary sacrifice. Good? Number three. We've got, a couple, we've got three more. We're going to make it. Maybe a little over time, but we're going to make it. Number three. Reconciliation. Reconciliation, the third facet of his atoning death, what he was doing on the cross, reconciling us. Okay, because of our sin, our sin's consequences, we've got guilt, we've got wrath. And God's wrath, because of our sin, includes separation as one of the consequences, right? Separation from his holy presence. And so one of the, uh, an additional consequence of our sin is alienation. Or separation from God. God's alienated from us because of his holiness. We're alienated from God because of our sinfulness. But Christ, in his death, he, in removing our sin and our guilt, he was removing the basis of our alienation. The enmity is removed as we're transformed from enemies to friends. And so his death also affects our reconciliation. He reconciles these two parties, God and man. Reconciliation. I don't think I have to belabor this point. Sin produces alienation. 
from the garden, Genesis 3, Adam and Eve, after they sinned, they're cursed. But then what comes next? There's sin, there's guilt, there's wrath, then separation. They're kicked out of the garden, they're barred, they're separate from God's presence in the garden. Isaiah 59.2 says, Your iniquities have made a separation between you and God. I trust you all get the point. But Jesus produces reconciliation. His atoning death accomplished, brought about reconciliation. Romans 5, turn there since you're already in Romans, right? Romans 5. And look at verse 10. In fact, look at, let's just back it up to verse 8. But God demonstrates his own love toward us. Now, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So there's, there's the death for us. Verse 9, much more than. Having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. The wrath of God, a big concept in Romans. Romans 1.18, God's wrath is revealed from heaven against all unrighteousness and ungodliness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness, right? We're under the wrath of God, but as propitiation, he turns it away. So Jesus died for us, took our guilt and our shame, saved us from the wrath of God, and thereby in removing the basis of separation, sin, guilt, wrath, he brings about what? Reconciliation. So look at verse 10. It says, for if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And not only this, but we also exalt in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received the reconciliation. What did he do in his death? What did he accomplish in his death on the cross? Many things. Verse 10 says, We were reconciled to God through the death of his son. There you have it. Pretty clear, right? This says a lot throughout the whole New Testament. That's why you got to break it down and kind of organize it. But here it's clear we were reconciled to God because he took away the, the basis of our alienation. Let me read for you 2 Corinthians 5, another big passage. 18 and 19 says that God reconciled us to himself through Christ. And gave us the ministry of reconciliation, namely that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. And he's committed to us the word of reconciliation. We are reconciled through the death of his son. And it comes by, it says in verse 19, not counting their trespasses against them. Jesus and paying for our sins. That, that was the, the, the reason for alienation, our sins. And Christ paid for them. Thereby, God doesn't count them against us. The, the certificate of debt is removed. We can be reconciled. Colossians 1, 20 through 22 is a great passage. I'll, I'll leave you to read that on your own. A great passage of reconciliation as well. We're reconciled. Uh, God, we were formerly alienated and hostile in mind, but we've been reconciled through the death of Christ. Which puts it perfectly. We were alienated, hostile, now we're reconciled, and we're blameless before God in Christ. And lastly, Ephesians 2.16, again, I won't read that, but it speaks of how Christ, not only did he, his death reconcile us to God, there's also a horizontal dimension to his atoning death. 
It provides the basis for which we can be reconciled to one another. And Ephesians 2.16 connects his atoning death to the oneness of the church, where our sin separates us from God, also from one another, and Christ's death reconciles us to God, also to one another. That through his death, we can even be one with one another as God intended us to be one people before him. So reconciliation, it's God's work, it's God's doing, and giving his son to deal with our sin and guilt. God was enabling us to be restored to his presence as Christ removed the enmity between God and man and even us and one another. He became to us reconciliation. Number four, we're almost there. Number four, redemption slash ransom. You can give this one a slash if you want. Redemption slash ransom. So because of our sin and our rebellion, not only do we incur guilt and wrath before God, we also find ourselves enslaved and in bondage. Another consequence of sin. We're rebels, but... We also find our sin has enslaved us. We're enslaved. We're in bondage to sin, its power, its penalty, its presence. This ultimately means we're in bondage to death, for the wages of sin is death. But here's another aspect of Christ's atoning death. What did he do on the cross? Well, partly he he freed us. He rescued us from bondage to sin. He redeemed us. He ransomed us. This redemption, so big picture, redemption, this concept of redemption, that's another one that's expressed in a lot of different ways. A lot of different words to speak of Christ redeeming us. Most of these words in the New Testament use commercial language or marketplace terminology. Jesus purchased us. He bought us and so forth. The primary one is ransom. But here's here's a quick list. I won't do this in, in too much detail. This is for your notes. But here's a lot of Greek words used to speak of our manifold redemption in Christ. All the different ways our redemption is expressed tied to the death of Christ. The primary one is lutrao, the word for ransom, that he liberated us. He purchased us by payment. Titus 2.14, he gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed. 1 Peter 1, we're, we're ransomed. Not by things that are perishable like silver and gold, but were ransomed by the blood of Jesus. 1 Peter 1.19 says, We're ransomed with his precious blood, as of a lamb, unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. So the ransom price, the price by which he acquired us, was his own blood. We're ransomed. Agarazzo, the word means to buy, to purchase in a marketplace. Jesus freed us from the liability of of paying for sin. He he paid it for us. And in paying our debt, he purchased us. We're not, not, you know, in one sense, we're free. In another sense, we're still slaves. It's just that we're his slaves. He he bought us to himself. 1 Corinthians 6.20, pair of verses that says, you were bought with a price. You were purchased. God bought you with a price namely his son. Therefore glorify God with your body. Revelation 5, 9, in heaven, Christ the lamb, he's being praised for what? It says, for you were slain and purchased for God with your blood, 
men from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. What did he do on that cross? He, he purchased with his blood for God the church. You have ex agorazo, that's very similar, it means to buy out of, to redeem. Galatians 3.13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. We're in bondage to sin, that's tied to the law. And he redeemed us from the curse of the law, which is death. There's a lot in there, but we don't have time. There's a reumai, to draw, to rescue, to deliver. Colossians 1.13, Christ rescued us from the domain of darkness. 1 Thessalonians 1.10, he rescued us from the wrath to come. It's a rescue mission. His death on the cross was a rescue mission. Methystomy, to transfer someone. Colossians 1.13, he transferred us from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of light. Exareo, to take out, to pluck out. Galatians 1.4, he rescued us from the evil age. Parapoeo, to acquire, to gain for oneself. Acts 20, 28, Christ gained. He purchased the church with his own blood. Antilutron, this is another word for ransom price. 1 Timothy 2, 6, Christ gave himself a ransom for all. And you, you can go and look at those verses more if you want on your own. We don't have time to, to do that. But you've got your own list. So a lot of these different words, all kind of, in a way, synonymous for redemption. What did he do on the cross? He redeemed a people for God's own possession with this, with this blood. And the result of what? Romans 6, verse 6, we're no longer slaves to sin, right? We're freed from bondage to sin. You keep reading in Romans 6, we are enslaved to righteousness now. That's a good thing. And this is why, like Ephesians 1 says, the Bible calls us the redeemed. We are the redeemed. It's another synonym for Christian. The redeemed. We've been bought with a price. So this is Christ's great work of redemption. He redeemed us from sin and its effects. There was a ransom. It's just that the ransom price of his blood was paid not to Satan, but to God. He gave his blood to God as a purchase price for the release of us from the consequences of sin. That's the main weight of his redemptive work. Now, that said, there is one dimension of the atonement that does involve Satan. We are primarily in bondage to sin and to death, but the Bible does speak of, of us as also being in bondage to the one who has power over death in this world, namely Satan. And so our redemption must include deliverance from sin, from death, and, and from Satan, and it does. So here we'll finish with this, number five, triumph. Number five, triumph. Here's the last main facet of what Jesus was doing on the cross. And his death was also a triumph over evil and Satan and the forces of darkness. The ransom theory we talked about last week gives way too much power and sovereignty to Satan but it does capture an element of truth, namely, we are in bondage to sin and vis-a-vis you know, -vis Satan. And it's also true, though, that in his atoning death, Jesus did triumph over all forces of darkness and thereby lead us in victory. His death marked a death blow to Satan and the kingdom of darkness. 
Ephesians 6, 2, 12, unless some verses here, Jesus as our triumph over Satan and evil. Ephesians 6, 12 makes clear that our, our warfare is ultimately against spiritual forces of darkness, right? Spiritual warfare is real. But just to summarize now for the sake of time, Colossians 2, 13 through 15, you know, Jesus uh, canceled out our certificate of debt and, and took it away from us. And verse 15 says, when he had disarmed the rulers and authorities, he made a public display of them, having triumphed over them through him. Christ's death was a triumph. He disarmed on the cross Satan and demons. And he did so by removing their ground of accusation against us, which was that certificate of debt of our sin. Christ, in paying for sin, removed Satan's great basis for accusing the brethren. Sin is paid for, and thereby he, he triumphed over them. Hebrews 2, 14 and 15 says, Therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, Jesus himself likewise also partook of the same, that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is the devil, and might free those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. There is a sense where Christ on the, on the cross was triumphing over Satan, and in triumphing over death, he was triumphing over Satan and freeing us from sin, Satan, and death's trifold grasp. 1 John 3.8 says that Jesus, the Son, appeared to destroy the works of the devil. 2 Timothy 1.10 mentions how Christ abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. And finally, 1 Corinthians 15.55-57 says, O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death, death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. So ultimately, from sin, from Satan, from death itself, we are redeemed through Christ who leads us in triumph over Satan and even death. So this is, in short, this is the final aspect of the atonement, triumph, victory. And that, that's a good way to end it. It does wrap it up, victory over all of our enemies, all that was wrong. The atonement of Jesus, the penal substitutionary atonement of Jesus, it's expressed by sacrifice, propitiation, reconciliation, redemption and ransom, and triumph. And the way to think about it is with our sin and the fall came consequences. You have a little chart at the very end of your notes. These consequences, different aspects of the sin problem, and they all keep us from God one way or another. But, but God, in providing a complete atonement in Christ, he was answering all these problems. He was rectifying all of these sin problems for us. We face guilt because of our sin, so we give Christ as a sacrifice. We faced wrath because of our guilt. He gave Christ as a propitiation. We face alienation because of our sin and guilt. He gave Christ as a reconciliation. We were in bondage to sin and its effects, its power. He gave Christ to redeem us and ransom us free. And we ultimately faced death, eternal death because of sin. But he sent Christ 
to triumph over Satan and even death itself on the cross to lead us in life and life everlasting. So this now is the atonement. We don't have the word in English, at least in the New Testament, but we, we got five words, five main concepts that give us the, the diamond of the atonement. Hopefully this gives you a better understanding now of what it means to say Jesus atoned for sins. When we say he died for you, what does that mean? Well, it means all these things. You have a better understanding of the atonement. We'll finish there. What's left is still quite a big task. It's to try and unravel the huge and, and often tricky issue of now, well, for whom did Jesus die? Did he do this? Did he do all of this? Did he atone for every single person ever or for only the elect? Big question. Now we can think about it with a proper understanding of the atonement. We'll start doing that next Wednesday. Well, you, we're already out of time. What, you think we're going to do it now? Come on. You want another hour? Well, I'm not prepared, so. <laughs> we'll just have to pray. So let's pray. Our great God, we, this, was, this was a Bible study tonight. This was, in, in a sense, an academic exercise. But we, we don't want to leave it just at that. We've studied great truths tonight. We've beheld magnificent truth from Scripture of what you did to get your church, to, to buy your church, to purchase a bride, a people, a body for, for yourself and for your son. And we have, to, we have to stop now and really check our hearts that we say thank you, that we remember and are affected by what we've studied. It was, it was a study. We are preparing for more study, Lord, but may we never just brush by these truths that we've been ransomed. We've been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. We've been reconciled to you as Christ was a sacrifice for our sins. He propitiated, turned aside your wrath. Lord, we know it. We, we feel it. I hope we do. The alienation our sin once produced before you, and yet Jesus took all that. He, he triumphed over our sin, over Satan, and even death itself, all in our place as this great substitute for us. This has to move us to worship. This has to move us, Lord, to our hearts uh, being being. Caught, caught on fire with this truth and our lives changed as a result where we we love you lord we we bow down we worship we are thankful and we live like it we live like the redeemed we've been bought with a price therefore glorify god with your body it says and we want to do that lord we want to live as those who have been bought with the price live redeem lives we have a new lease on life through Christ. We want to live like it, Lord. And, and I pray we are greatly and greater motivated to do that this evening through this study and that it, it affects us. And until next time, we, we pray you keep us in your will. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.